Good morning. Welcome to Tom's World Language Cafe, coming to you live from Fishers, Indiana, where the temperature now is about 42 degrees on a cloudy Monday morning. And it's November the 28th. I want to thank the listeners for joining us and, and being here and uh, sharing some time with us. And also to tell all of you that if you'd like to sign up and subscribe to the podcast, you can do that uh, at the Apple Podcast when you sign into it. And it's Tom Alsop's Apple Podcast. So, uh, and tell your friends about it as well. And uh, so here we are. It's close to Christmas. We're getting close to all the, the Christmas festivities, the holidays, etc. And I do want to wish all of you a happy holiday season. Uh, and also to uh, remind you that our December podcast, I think we're going to have, if things go well, we're going to have another French professor uh, on the show uh, from a different college. And uh, we're excited to have some French uh, profes on the show. And uh, so we have a little more balance on our show. And um, the um, guest that we have today for you is um, uh, Dr. Larry Riggs. And uh, I, I'm going to call him Larry because we've known each other for many years. And Larry is uh, a renowned uh, French professor at Butler University. Um, he has done some great things writing and teaching. And we're going to share his career and how, how he got to where he is. And uh, it's quite a, quite a story. And uh, Larry, good morning. Thank you for being on the show. Good morning. Thank you. And I want to say I've enjoyed the opportunity to reminisce about and reflect on my career. Well, I'm glad that you did. And that's that's awesome. And uh, we also want to tell the listeners it is an honor to have Larry on the show. Um, he's a very uh, distinguished professor and um, a very uh, incredible knowledge about all things French and a lot about all things world language as well. Um, Larry, can you tell the listeners a little bit about where you're from? Yeah, I'm from Southern California. I was born in Santa Monica, lived in West Los Angeles until I was 12. And then in the great migration to the suburbs, we moved to uh, Orange County. And I was in Garden Grove and through high school. I went to college at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I got all my degrees there, BA, MA, and PhD. And, uh, well, from there, uh, my career developed and I became somewhat itinerant. So I guess we'll talk about that as we go. But the, uh, the answer to your question is I am from Southern California. Boy, what a great place to be from, right? Uh, and my next question is, do you go return there quite often? I do, yes. My, uh, my sister and her family are still out there. And so my wife and I go out there two or three times a year, yes. Now, we're still... Yeah. My roots are still there. My wife is uh, is from Indiana, but uh, uh -huh. she accompanies me out there a couple times a year. Okay, wonderful. And uh, uh, interesting, my brother lives out there. My brother lives in San Diego, and uh, uh, my sister my sister lives in Menifee, which is seventy miles north of San Diego. Yeah, very close. Yeah. Um, now, where so um, where are you teaching now? I am teaching at Butler University in Indianapolis. I have been here since 1991. So I'm in the middle of my 31st year at Butler. Okay. And my next question is, where were you prior to that? <laughs> so, Before I came to Butler, I was at the University of Hawaii, where I taught for 15 years. And before that, I started my career at Juniata College in central Pennsylvania. And I was there for three years. Okay. So I guess if you add that up, you see that I'm in uh, the middle of my 49th year as a, as a college professor. Well, congratulations. What a career, right? That's just an amazing, amazing story. And uh, of all the places you've been, I, would you rate Hawaii as the best weather? Yes, I would uh, rate it as the best weather, although I appreciate the seasons. Um, I guess being from Southern California, I appreciate the seasons all the more because they were new to me when I went to Pennsylvania. In Southern California, of course, there's not much in the way of seasonal change. Uh, Hawaii was very nice. Uh, it was warm and humid all the time. Uh, but yes, nice, especially when the trade winds were blowing. Perfect weather. <laughs> so 
What, why do you like teaching French? 49 years is a long time, so I'm, I'm going to make an assumption that you totally, totally love teaching French. Is that correct? Uh, yes, I love teaching French. I also have always taught uh, in uh, one or another of the interdisciplinary programs at the institutions where I've taught. So, yes, I love teaching French, but I like teaching in general. I like teaching humanities in general. Um, so I think I'm pretty eclectic as far as teaching is concerned, as I am in my intellectual interest. Right now, for example, I, I'm in a typical semester. I have two French classes and one class in what we call global and historical studies, which is an interdisciplinary course. Uh, it's a, basically an historical course, but with a, an added element of scientific discourse and the arts. So, um, would you say that, um, that your teaching, your approach to teaching, that it's, it's more fun than a job, that you enjoyed it like it was just a neat thing to do, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make perfect sense, uh, because I think the reason why I wound up as a college professor is because I always loved being in school. <laughs> And as I say often to my students who ask me how I got into this game, um, if you stay in school long enough, they make you a professor. So that's the reason why I'm a college professor. Uh, the reason why I'm a French professor, I think, and this is where the value of these reminiscences I've been doing, thanks to your invitation, uh, comes in. I had very charismatic French teachers on several occasions. And I think that, more than anything else, is what channeled my general intellectual interest and ambition into French, specifically. Now, who were your, who were your favorite French professors, your top two of all time? Top two French professors of all time. Well, first of all would be Jack Murray, who was my uh, professor at UC Santa Barbara as both an undergraduate and a graduate student. And uh, the second one, if I have to name two, the second one would be Ron Tobin, who uh, was and still is at the age of 85, a very well-known figure in the world of uh, French literature and French culture. Uh, so I would say that those two, both at UC Santa Barbara, were influential in channeling me specifically in the direction of uh, French language and literature. So what was it that you liked about the, their classes that made you, you know, admire them so much? I think uh, the fact that they were challenging and that they themselves obviously relished being challenged. They responded very substantively to my work, uh, encouragingly but critically at the same time. And so I think that they, uh, I recognized them pretty much immediately as role models for me as uh, not only a student, but also a uh, eventually a teacher, and maybe even, although I hesitate to use the term, uh, an intellectual. Yes, and I, I would definitely agree with that. And so when we talk about what you're saying about them, then there's a tremendous amount of positivity, right, in what they did. I mean, from what you're saying, I gather that, that they were very positive people, right? And cre yes. creative, yes. creative people, right? Positive, positive, innovative. Uh, they had interesting ideas. They sort of pushed the envelope, to use a phrase that we didn't use in those days, uh, in terms of interpreting literary texts. And they both, although not native speakers, they both spoke beautiful French, which made them role models in another way. Um, yeah, so they themselves were serious about their work. And they inspired me to be serious about mine. So, now, what were your favorite courses that you've taught? What are some of them? I know you had a bunch, but uh, I'm, I'm assuming that you, you're, lean, you're lean toward literature, right? As your, well, your, your, that's, that's, your that's interesting. Um, yeah, overall, I lean toward literature. I've always, though, taught language, taught French language courses. Uh, I've never had the luxury, and maybe it's a good thing, I've never had the luxury of teaching in a research-oriented institution where I would teach only graduate students. 
So I've always taught a combination of literature and language. And I've, I've come to realize just in the last few years that I really, really like teaching intermediate French. Uh, right now, as I said, I'm teaching uh, two French courses, one intermediate French and then one uh, third-year course on translation. And I'm teaching that uh, Global and Historical Studies course and it's an ideal combination, but I really I, I like the uh, the French 204, as we call it, the intermediate French, as much as the other two. Yes, and it and it also does it not give you a chance to see how the kids are developing with their language acquisition, right? What, exactly. Where, you, you you anticipated my next thought. Yes, okay. it gives you a chance to see learning going on. And to see students not only learning, but aware that they're learning, and some of them at least are very happy about it. So uh, that and that's good. They they, they they recognize their own learning, and and they like the idea of making progress. Well, and for the listeners, Larry's a very popular French uh, professor at Butler, and the kids really enjoy and love his class. I I know that from all the years I've been been at Butler there, and uh, and I'm chatted with Larry many times and uh, he, Larry brings a vision I think to to world language education as well I mean he has a neat perspective about world languages and I wanted to throw that in for the listeners um, now what about um, your your family now I mean you mentioned your wife is from Indiana now she's yeah. she's involved in uh, have you have uh, done some projects with your wife right about learning, yes. language learning, correct? Yes, she is my wife and my co-author. Yes, co-author, co-presenter. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So tell, when, us when about, we, tell us about what some of those presentations have been Well, she's, uh, she teaches, she's a college teacher. And as her well. name is Sandy, right? Sandy. Okay. Yes. Sandy Riggs. She, uh, she teaches at IUPUI. She teaches online at this point. She actually taught at Butler for six years. Uh, she's in psychology, and uh, her specialty is child and adolescent development. And we decided when we got together that we would like to figure out a way to work together, uh, to present at conferences together, to publish articles, co-author articles and publish them together. And we succeeded in doing that. So we combined uh, our two primary interests by developing expertise in subjects like transformative learning, uh, cognitive development, uh, as particularly as applied to language, um, learning for cultural diversity, and so on. Now, so yeah, over, over the last 15 years, we've uh, presented at international conferences together and published a number of articles. So behavior, right? I'm sure you that's part of what you do, right? With the behavior yes. side of life. Yeah, behavior. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, but behavior, can you tell the audience your observations about how behavior and uh, uh, influences language learning or teach uh, student experiences as it, they come into the classroom? Um, the social aspect, right? Kind of combined with the psychological is that has a huge um, importance in language learning, right? Yes, there is a social aspect. I mentioned also the, uh, the fact that language, uh, language is not completely unique among academic subjects, but it is one of a small number of academic subjects where students from the beginning can observe the progress that they're making, and they can use the skills that they're acquiring to communicate with other students, and they can imagine, and, and some of them actually realize the imagining, they can imagine being in the country where the language is spoken and uh, interacting with native speakers of that language. Um, an activity that I use a great deal is uh, oral presentations on topics having to do with French or Francophone culture. Uh, I think that I, I usually have the students do that in the, in the second year course as a sort of uh, capstone on the course. We spend the last three sessions of the course listening to students give presentations on topics like French wine <laughs> or, or creme brulee or the, the history of the macaroon, uh, Versailles, the, the Eiffel Tower. And 
I think that is an interesting and productive aspect of what I take you to mean by behavior, actually making use of something they've learned, research they've done themselves rather than information that I've given them. And they do it outside the structure of the class. They decide what their topic is going to be. They do the research and then they present. So there's, there's a lot of choice learning going on, right? A lot of, yes, a lot of choice. Um, I've, I seldom, if ever, prescribe a topic for a student's uh, project. Um, and also they, they present in a variety of ways. Uh, some of them just give a straight oral presentation. Some of them do rather elaborate PowerPoints. Uh, some of them do videos. So it's an interesting, as I say, it's an interesting capstone experience for them and, and also for me. I get ideas every time out of this capstone portion of the course for the next edition of the course. Beautiful, beautiful, well said, and uh, beautiful ideas. Um, now, if um, um, what are some of your favorite memories about teaching French? You must have a lot of neat memories about some experience in class that you had and that really impressed you, right? Yes. Um, I, I've always enjoyed it. Uh, one thing that I uh, recognized long ago was that my teaching became more effective as I became more relaxed about it, if you can imagine what I mean. When I first started out, I think typically, I came out of graduate school thinking that I was immediately going to grab a hold of the students and drag them up to the level that I thought I had reached. And uh, in the early days, uh, student evaluation, student commentary would often say that I was intimidating. And um, I took that to heart and uh, tried to figure out what it meant and how I could respond to it and improve in whatever area that was getting at. And uh, I, as I became more confident and more relaxed, more secure, frankly. I mean, when, when one starts out in a tenure-track job, one uh, is, is striving to qualify for tenure. If you don't get tenure, you're history in the profession. So I think I was a little bit overheated about that. Uh, especially after I got tenure, I was able to be more relaxed and I was able to recognize that every, every crop of students I got, so to speak, uh, was the same age as the previous crop. These students were all between 18 and 22 years old. So I approached them in that way. I realized that I was part of what at best would be an incremental process, and what I was offering them was only one increment. Yeah. If that makes sense. It does. So I stopped, I stopped trying to push them too hard. Yes, it does make sense. And I want to go back to this relaxation idea. So what you basically, you're talking to, I think, right, about setting the atmosphere for a classroom, right, for success. I mean, the relaxation brought success, right? Yes. yes. This, uh, what I On think the is called part, uh, yeah. in the trade a supportive learning environment. Yes. And the supportive learning environment is hugely important for the in, any new teachers that might be listening to the show. It's hugely important, right? This, this yes, it's, it's absolutely essential for the, the students, students along, that they right? can actually engage in, a, yeah. in an interchange with the professor rather than being on the receiving end. And, and, then, and then we get into the behavior part and, and the psychology of language learning, right? Where the more comfortable those kids feel, right? Relaxed they're going to perform better, right? Yeah, yes. And, and actually, fundamentally, it, it's a matter of applying pretty simple principles. For example, uh, for many years now, I have made it a priority to learn the students' names as quickly as possible. Yes, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. That's one thing I, that over the years I started doing. <laughs> and the quicker you memorize the names, right, the better the, you can have an exchange, right? with the kids exactly. and make exactly. the environment be relaxed because yeah. you can call them by their first name and, right. and, and you know who they are and it's very important. So it's what you're saying then is too, this relaxed atmosphere and, and it takes a long time, right? To get that way, right? I mean, 
the beginning teachers aren't going to be that way, right? I mean, it just kind of is like an osmosis, right? The more you well, teach, yeah. the, the better you get. That, I'm sorry. That, that, goes, that goes toward answering another question that, that you're implying, and that is, why am I still doing this? <laughs> <laughs> and one of the main reasons I'm still doing it, frankly, is because I figured out how to do it. Yes. So, Great so answer. That's a beautiful answer. I love it. That's so, awesome. So why, why would I stop? Yes. You know how to do it, right? It's like you figure the formula out, right? You, yeah, you got the formula and you figured out. To go back to that business of learning the students' names, another simple thing is I ask them from the beginning as much as possible always to sit in the same place because, of course, space is a great memory age, a memory aid. So if they sit in the same place, if I've called on them or, or called the role three or four times and they're, and they're all sitting in the same places, I pretty much know their names already. Yes, exactly. Just, but it's the little things in the classroom that sometimes, you, you know, especially in methods courses for language learning, uh, world language methods, some of the people forget about, you know, when they teach these things, though, they get off kilter somewhat because... Some of these things, like you said, getting the names down, all these th little, little simple things, right? And having a, a seating arrangement where they sit in the same seat. But you can't neglect these things, right? You have to do them. And as you said, to get to this final, nice, relaxed environment where you got it figured out, right? That's a good way to say it. I love how you said it. Finally get it all figured out, right? And uh, uh, that's love. I love that. So... Um, so we get down to this um, uh, countries that you visited. Now you visited a lot of countries, I'm sure. What are your favorite countries to visit? Well, France, of course, and uh, Italy, Germany, the United Kingdom. Just about everywhere I I've been uh, in Europe. Uh, Iceland. I uh, I spent some time in Iceland. A number of years ago, and that was fascinating. That's that's an an awesome landscape. Um, I can't. I had never visited a country that I didn't feel as if I got something significant right. from. Uh, Sandy and I went on a Baltic Sea cruise with my sister and brother-in-law several years ago, and we visited eight countries there, and they were all quite interesting, including Russia. We visited Saint Petersburg, and. Fortunately, we got there before things really went sour between the U.S. and, and Russia. Uh, that was quite interesting. So, but I would say my favorites really are uh, Germany, France, and Italy. Now, so what are your favorite places in France to visit? I think uh, my favorite places in France are the, uh, the Alps, the southeast near Geneva. Uh, my daughter, I have a daughter who lives in Europe, and she lived in Geneva for years. And when we would go visit her, we would uh, spend time in the mountains near Geneva. She lived in Geneva. And uh, that is beautiful. I also like uh, the Northwest, Normandy and Brittany. And the Dordogne region, the uh, inland up the river from Bordeaux. Excellent. Uh, yeah, in, Italy, in Italy, I would say, of course, Rome. Uh, and, and Venice. We just actually just got back. My daughter lives in Venice now. We visited her this fall for a week. Did there. you like Florence? Venice and, and the, the Amalfi Coast. Okay. Um, so if, um, let's go to another topic here. So why study a world language today? I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people give for what, why students should study a world language today. Yeah. What would you say about that? Well, that really is, that's a question that's fundamental to me. And uh, as I was imagining answering this question, I thought you would probably ask this question. As I was imagining answering it, I was starting an imagination by saying, I'm old school. And to me, uh, learning a language that is foreign to one is educational in the largest sense. Uh, I'm still very much an advocate of the old ideal of the liberal arts, liberal arts education. So the first thing I would say in answer to your question is it's good for you. Uh, it's good for developing cognitive skills, cognitive flexibility, especially cognitive flexibility. 
So that would be point number one. I think studying a, a, a foreign language, a, a world language, is educational in the fundamental sense. And then, of course, it also gives you an entree into all kinds of places in the world. But in my, in my view, whether you ever go to any of those places or not, studying or having studied a language will make you a better rounded, more cognitively skilled, uh, more flexibly aware person. Beautifully said, that beautifully said, excellent. Um, what about this, um, um, the world language study today, the importance of studying French? Because uh, sometimes, you know, we, we hear more maybe about the Spanish learning because of the influx of the immigrants in the United States, and, uh, or maybe uh, Chinese uh, study, um, Arabic study now. Um, but where does France fit in all of this? Because it does, I know it certainly does, but for our listeners, how would you put France in the importance of all this? Well, I'd answer that by uh, just making a couple of points. First of all, France is one of the most important members of the European Union, and I think uh, the European Union uh, is a culturally as well as an economically and politically significant entity in the world. And so France is important in that respect as part of the European Union. I would also say that French language gives one access to French and Francophone culture. Francophone is more and more of an important concept and more and more of an important reality. The French Caribbean, French Africa, French Canada, all those places uh, are culturally rich and interesting as countries, as places to visit or even to work. So mastering the French language gives one uh, access uh, not only to a vitally important world culture, but also to a number of important and increasingly important regions of the, uh, of the world in geographical terms. Well said, well said. Now, if um, um, you were to give advice to people starting in languages now, just starting out, what do you think the best techniques for teaching a world language are? Now, this is interesting because you've been in the trenches, you've been there for years, and as you said, you have this figured out, right? So what you say here is important. Uh, is there, <laughs> well, well, let me uh, go ahead and tell me what you think, okay, first, okay? I have it figured out in terms of what works for me. Uh, good, okay. okay. I, will, good. I will say that uh, for me, the operative phrase is eclectic and intuitive. So I would say that as one works one's way into the profession, one needs to discover what works for oneself and for the students one encounters, rather than adhering to some particular methodology in absolute terms. Yeah, okay, I'm going to stop you for a second. Would you call that pragmatic learning then? Practic pragmatic. Yes. Mm -hmm. In other words, as you said, what works for the person, right? The individual person. Yeah, I, yes, I think, yeah you, yeah, you added a good concept. I said eclectic and intuitive, and you said pragmatic, and I think eclectic and, eclectic and intuitive add up to pragmatic, yeah. What works? What works for you? Um, what works for you usually or always, but also what works in a particular class? Because it's, sometimes you got to change, right? Sometimes, sometimes you have to change, sometimes you have to adapt, and I'll tell you something that I do, something I learned uh, when I was trying to figure out how to connect better with my students. I always give an early semester or a mid-semester student evaluation, and I ask them, what's working for you? What's working best? What's working least well? What would you like to see more of? What would you like to see less of? And so the proportions of the various activities that I use in a particular class can vary depending on the response that I'm getting from the students. Yes. If I get a majority of the students saying X, then I'm going to do more of X. Okay, yes, totally. And if I, if, totally if I get, if I get a significant yes. number who say that Y isn't working for me, then I'm going to de-emphasize Y, despite the fact that I may think Y is a great activity. <clears throat> yes, exactly. Now, so... 
comprehensible input, which in the old days, I think we called it total immersion, right? Remember back in the, mm -hmm. the old days, we, it was a big thing, the total immersion. So do you think, because I know in the high schools especially, there are people who really are pushing this today, and uh, not everybody, but you know, there's a sizable group. Do you think this is a good way to learn language with total immersion, or again, do you have to go to what's pragmatic, right? I, I, I'm, that's my question for you. Yeah. Yes, I think I think you have to go to what's pragmatic. And uh, if I were going to caricature what I think uh, overuse of total immersion would amount to is everybody chattering together in bad French. <laughs> As I said, here, here, again, here again, I'm old school, and I don't, it's not surprising, I suppose, since I am old, but I, I teach a substantial amount of grammar, and I use translation. Translation, to me, is a very valuable activity for students, for vocabulary building and so on. So I think, but the other thing is, I will, I will say this about, about immersion. If you give students material, interesting material, material interesting to them to communicate about, then yes, it's very, very useful to have them speak in the language as much as possible. Listen and speak in the language as much but, as possible. But I, what, I, what, I, yeah, yeah. What, you're, what you're saying, though, is that it's probably... Um, it's probably a good idea, again, though, to mix, right? To mix things. You know, there might be a day when you, you know, say, yeah, we'll do this total immersion on a story, right? But then you do a little grammar, right? And you get back to your little bit of your structure, right? Is that what you're kind of saying here? A kind of a mix? I mean, you're not just yeah. saying, just go out there and do this all in the language every second, right? That's right. That's what I'm saying. Because... Yes. Um, if you think about it, we're dealing, for the most part, with people who are around 20 years old. So they are developmentally different, and therefore they're different learners from younger children. So what younger children may learn by absorption, these students need to learn to a certain degree uh, in, a, in a more structured way. We also have to be realistic about the volume of language that our students are actually going to be able to be exposed to. Can I make another point about that? Yes, absolutely. Something, something that has happened recently, well, recently in my terms, but say over the last 25 years, um, in order to save foreign language instruction, frankly, from those who are skeptical about its value, is a, an unrealistic attitude about what it takes to learn a significant mastery in a language. So I like to approach it as if it were a long-term project. And as I said, I became a more successful teacher when I became more modest in my aims. Yeah. If I'm teaching, if I'm teaching second-year French, I'm thinking about uh, what is realistic. What are realistic objectives and outcomes for second-year French? Yes. And I try, I try to design my activities or my behaviors, as you call them, uh, with that in mind. Yes. Well said. Well said. Um, which reminded me of something one of my professors in graduate school at, at Indiana University, uh, a Spanish literature professor, actually. And he said that uh, we have to be cautious in, about teaching world languages because... Uh, there is no one perfect way to do it, right? And that's correct, right? And the more that I've done this, there is no one perfect way, right? Everybody has their own style, right? And, uh, and as you said, uh, probably it, it sounds like what you're doing is a lot of variety, right? Variety of structures, strategies, etc. And uh, what, what's practical, right, for you. And I think that's something the maybe for the listeners too, you know, to think about, is there one perfect way to teach a world language, right? And there isn't, right? right? There really right. is not. And yeah, another thing that has to be considered is uh, one's own time. What can you actually do justice to in terms of preparation, in terms of the amount of time you actually have 
in sessions of the class and also in terms of correcting and responding to student work. So there's, there's, there's no point in trying to do too much. It's counterproductive. So um, going back to this, um, let's, let's go to this, um, the next uh, point of interest here. Um, funny things that happen to you while teaching. Have you ever had a funny thing or two happen while you're yeah. teaching class? <laughs> yeah, in the, in, in the, in the sample uh, script that you sent me, I saw that question and I racked my brain and I couldn't really think of anything that would qualify as funny. But I will say two things, which are, I think, related to the concept of funny. One is that I had a student a couple of years ago whose project for the end of the second year class was creme brulee. And he was giving his presentation, and he had prepared creme brulee, a nice big pan of creme brulee. And as he was giving his presentation, he was doing the brulee part. He was burning the sugar. And he set fire to his script. Oh, dear. In the middle of his presentation. Now, I don't know whether that's actually funny. Or well, it's kind of I, like, I, suppose it could, I suppose it could have been tragic. He didn't burn himself, though, fortunately. Uh, the, the other thing I would say in response to that is I have certainly felt and I would imagine looked ridiculous in class on many occasions, primarily because of technology. Either, either my technological ignorance or the fact that the technology that I was planning to use just didn't work. And so I have, I have quite often had to ask my students to help me figure out how to make something work. And nine times out of ten, they can figure it out very easily. Uh, because I am not techno savvy. So, but again, sharing with the kids, you know, that that yeah, well, point being, yeah. shows, shows being willing to you're, being, you're, being, you're human, right? Being willing to say, you know, I just don't know how to do this. Yes, and you do. <laughs> so yeah. they they can teach me something. Absolutely, yes, and I'm sure we've all had the same experiences with that in in the classroom and. Uh, it's a super point again, and uh, what you're saying too is that you're very human in class, right? And uh, you know you can laugh along with things and all those. And that's another thing about teaching. You know, when teachers first start out, they have to keep their human side, right? I mean, you can't just you know go in and and as you said early on, when you're trying to find all these answers, but you just have to be somewhat human, right? Throughout this well, whole yeah, thing. That, that goes back to where we started, which was me being intimidating in, yes. my, in my early days. Uh, yeah, I, I was intimidating, I suppose, because uh, either I took myself too seriously or I didn't feel as if I could afford to relax. Whatever it was, the students were smelling it, so to speak, yes. uh, and they didn't like it. Yes. Uh, I wasn't somebody with whom they felt that they could have a real exchange. And I think, I think now I am. Now, I want to go to your publishing uh, because you've written a lot of books and uh, I know especially you like writing about Moliere. Could you tell us a little bit about some books that you've written, of which there are many? Yeah, um, my dissertation uh, was about a, a, a theory of comic discourse. And of course, in French, the ultimate comedian is Moliere. So, uh, to the extent that I have a specific literary specialty, it's Moliere, Theory of Comedy, and um, I think the best book that I've written was on Moliere. It was about his use of comedy to challenge some of the assumptions that were becoming predominant in his time about uh, modernity, progress, and so on. I see him as challenging uh, Cartesian philosophy, if that isn't too esoteric uh, a term. So I like that book. I still make use of research that I did for that book. I spent uh, a full year sabbatical and several more years part-time researching for that book. I also wrote a book, Moliere, and uh, three other writers. And I, I like that one. That was about uh, culture, about the ways in which these writers 
seem to me to be challenging the mainstream culture of their time. And you can you can perhaps see that there's <laughs> there's a trend in my literary work. There uh, it has to do with challenging the dominant culture of the, of any given time. And uh, I mentioned also the fact that uh, Sandy and I do work together now. That's more recent. Um, I'm very pleased with that, uh, not only because I think it enriches our relationship, our marriage, but also because I th it's led me into a whole new area. And you've written some articles, right? About a num yeah, a number, a number of articles published in international journals, yes. So I continue to do work in, in literary, literary and cultural studies, but we're also doing uh, this other sort of quasi-pedagogical work, yes. Yeah. Now, so um, how many languages do you speak? Well, I, uh, <laughs> if I could practice more often in all of them, I would say I speak uh, French, Spanish, Portuguese, and German. I speak French, of course, fluently, native quality, and I still speak Spanish pretty well. I'll go back to my education in a minute, if I may, after we talk about this. And uh, Portuguese, I learned. I decided, having learned Spanish, that it would be interesting and probably not too difficult for me to learn Portuguese. So I learned Portuguese. I had to uh, do German for my PhD program. And so those are the languages. So variety, yeah. Still. Now, uh, so what about teaching culture? Uh, why is that so important to, to teach culture? Because it is very important, right? And but why is it so? Uh, I think the simple answer is to educate people to overcome their ethno-nationalistic assumptions about reality, about life, about the world. So it, without exposure to real cultural products from other cultures, there's no confrontation with the fact that one's own culture has limitations. Yes, totally beautifully said, yes. I, well said. That, that's a fascinating answer. Now, what about creativity, right? What, what makes for a creative teacher? What do you think that means? Yeah, creativity is an interesting concept, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's easy to say, uh, but very difficult to, to define and, and very difficult to be or to do. I would say creativity is a combination of preparation and adaptability. Uh, we've talked a lot about my idea that teaching is pragmatic. Um, it, it, it may not seem evident at first, but I think there's a close relationship between pragma pragmatism and creativity. Uh, creativity is being able to recognize what works, being able to imagine what might work, and then being willing to test it. Yes, and do it, right? A combination, it. combination of what you have done before that worked and what you thought you'd like to try that might work, and uh, then trying it out and being willing to take the consequences. It either works or it doesn't work. So you, you figure out how to make more use of it or better use of it, or uh, if necessary, you discard it. Now, what about uh, that? We totally agree to that. And uh, what about um, the state of world language study today? Do you think we need to be having more requirements where the kids study languages? Or uh, is everything pretty much decently good? Um, what is the state of world language teaching around the country, maybe at high school versus college? How would you rate that? Well, I'd have to say, based on what I know and what I hear, overall, it's not very good. Uh, I think that foreign language requirements at the college level have atrophied to a significant degree. Um, and this is, this is something that I was hoping I would get a chance to talk about in this podcast, frankly. So... Uh, if you'll indulge me for a minute, I'll, I'll okay. That's wonderful. Expatiate on this. Yes, that's this, good. This goes back. This goes back to my old school idea about liberal education. Um, 
I think, and this, this connects to with what you asked about culture, what's the importance of studying culture. I think that studying uh, another language is the kind of cognitive challenge that's necessary to develop critical thinking skills. I think just as encountering real products of another culture is challenging in a meaningful way, uh, encountering the, the sheer existence of another language, of an alternative way of structuring the world, is inherently challenging. So, as I think I said before, whether you ultimately wind up using it or not in some obvious way, having studied a language is good for you. Um, to, me, to me, the ultimate goal of education is critical thinking. And Being what, how would you not, define not only, that? Not only, go ahead. How would you define critical thinking? Okay, I would define critical thinking as being able to look as much as possible at the reality that one sees in front of one without presuppositions. Okay. Um, I realize that's pretty short, but I no, think that's... No, that's, that's good. That's good. That's good. Um, so... Let's talk about technology today while we're thinking about some of the situations in the, in the high schools, college. Uh, where are we headed with technology? You and I talk about this quite often, I think, but where are we going with this technology business? And uh, how important is it to have live in-person language instruction, right? How important is that? Uh, how important is it to still maintain a decent amount of time in class where the kids are talking to one another, working together, speaking, and not on a screen, right? Because we've mm -hmm. kind of entered into this, the, the world of the screen, right? Screen learning. <laughs> so uh, are we doing too much of that? Or do we need to do more? Or where should we be with that, in your opinion? Well, I begin uh, to answer that question by uh, referring to social media and the effects that they seem to be having on us as a society, us as individuals and us as a society. Uh, I think that uh, technology purports to create more opportunities for interaction, but I think it actually limits them. We've seen in social media that people select their associates on the basis of whether or not their associates agree with them. So you have the famous bubble or echo chamber effect. And I think uh, that uh, is not a good thing. By the same token, I think that interacting in, in three-dimensional space, so to speak, with an actual person is, is essential. I don't think that there's any way that technology can make up for the absence of that. I use technology moderately, modestly. I have my students watch videos um, and so on. I have them listen to music. Uh, and that's really about as far as it goes with technology. I don't have them do interactive exercises uh, online. I have them do interactive exercises with me and with each other yes. in, uh, in real time and space. Yes. And uh, I think the students appreciate that too, right? I mean, they, they, do. they, they, they enjoy they, it. Yeah, they, we, always, we always hear that the yeah. students are demanding more use of yeah. technology, and frankly, I have found that that is not true. Well, I, I have found that the kids tell me sometimes they get tired of being on the screen, right? They're always yeah. in front of a screen all the time. And, uh, yeah. And, 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 yeah, and which brings me to a, a quick point. Uh, I know I'm speaking of our grandkids who are 9 to 13 years old, and the screen dominates all their lives, right? And that's that way in the country right now. You know, the iPads, the apps that they have, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, where does it stop, right? I think that's going to be ultimately the question that we're all going to face, you know. Uh, are we going to just put a limit, you know, and say we can't, this is where we stop this, you know. Uh, because it, uh, I don't know how fair it is even, you know, to have a classroom teacher have to compete with an app, right? You know, a yeah. game, an app that the company spend millions of dollars to develop or something. I mean, and then the teacher comes up there and it's like, wow, you know, <laughs> it's, 
is the competition fair, right? And, uh, you know, it, it brings up a lot of interesting um, well, yeah, discussion. another thing, uh, I, I, I realize that we're getting uh, short of time, but something else I will say about the impact of technology on education is look how much of the budget it takes up at a place like Butler. Look at how much of Butler's budget yes. is taken up with the buying and maintenance and repair of technological devices. Yes, it's, it's, it's astounding. It's that way throughout the country, right, and the world. Uh, it's 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 gotten a little bit perhaps out of hand, right? So and you know, yeah, and you can, yet you, sometimes you, can, you just have to say it. Sometimes you know, even though people don't like it, some people. But you know, it's like, uh, what are we doing, right? Just stop back and step yeah, back. And look. You, you, meant, you mentioned your grandchildren, and and that, that's that's definitely classic. Yes. Uh, my uh, my wife has uh, several young grandchildren, and. It's very difficult to get them to answer a question or to participate in a conversation. The conversation they're participating in is via text or Instagram or something with people who aren't actually there. Yes, yes. And what they're not doing is forming real attachments in real time and space. They're not paying attention to their elders and they're not really learning how to interact with people who are co-present, so to speak. So frankly, uh, I think that the role of technology is too large, and I think the benefits are grossly exaggerated, and I think the exaggeration begins with the people who are becoming billionaires by selling technology. Yes, I totally agree with you. Um, Larry, it's time to leave, and I've enjoyed this session. You've been marvelous, and I just really appreciate you being on again. It's been an honor to have you with all your wisdom about language learning and uh, French literature and travel. And it's just been a delight to have you on the show. And uh, we would welcome the uh, people to return and listen to our next podcast. It's going to be another French professor uh, in uh, later in December. And Larry's going to say goodbye here and wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year in French. And then I'll do it in Spanish. Okay, here we go. Okay, oui. Au revoir. Bonne fête. Joyeuse fête. Bueno, feliz Navidad y prosper año nuevo. And thank you all for being with us. And you all have a great week and a great uh, Christmas break. It's coming up soon, okay? Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Larry, again, thank you so much. Uh, it has been fascinating, okay? Thank you well, thank again. You. Yes, thank and, you very uh, much. And uh, as I said, I've really enjoyed the opportunity to think uh, more about what I'm doing than I have. Wonderful. We're so glad that you could be on the show. Okay, listeners, uh, have a great week, and I hope you're staying warm wherever you are. Okay. Okay, nos vemos. Adios.